Welcome back to Never Found, Never Forgotten. I'm your host, Melanie. It has been a long time. I'm so sorry. It's just been a long time. It started when my computer died and just never picked up, I guess. Um, But I'm back now and yeah, let's get back into it. I hate doing cases about kids. They always bum me out, but this week I'm going to tell you two. So let's get into this week's episode, the disappearances of one-year-old Ayla Reynolds from Waterville, Maine, and the disappearance of 10-month-old Lisa Irwin from Kansas City, Missouri. Ayla Reynolds was 20 months old on December 16th, 2011, when she was last seen. And I know people hate it when parents refer to their kids' ages in months, but listen, there is a big difference between a 12-month-old who just turned one and a 20-month-old who's soon going to be two. Developmentally, those first two years are crazy, so saying she's one could mean a lot of things. Yes, she's a year old, but developmentally, she's 20 months. Anyhow, she was last seen on December 16th, 2011, around 8 p.m. when her father, Justin DiPietro, put her to bed. But the next morning, she was no longer in her crib. She had vanished. He called police around 8.50 a.m. on December 17th to report her missing. There were other people in the home that night. Justin's girlfriend, Courtney Roberts, and her child. Justin's sister, Alicia DiPietro, and her child. So in total, there are three adults and three children, including Ayla, in the home the night she disappeared. Ayla's mother, Trista Reynolds, was in a 10-day substance abuse treatment program for heroin addiction at the time of Ayla's disappearance, and she had filed for sole custody just the day before. Ayla had been placed in Justin's custody by the Maine Department of Health and Human Services two months prior, but according to family members, no home visit was conducted prior to the placement. Investigators on the scene the day after Ayla's disappearance find her blood in the home. They found blood on a doll in her room, on a sofa in the living room, and in multiple places in her dad's bedroom, including the floor, the walls, mattress, and sheets. Blood was also found on Justin's shoes and on Ayla's car seat in his car. Now, Justin and his lawyer maintain his innocence and they claim this blood was from a time when she was sick. Make of that what you will. Initially, Waterville businesses put up a $30,000 reward for information And this reward led to over 1,200 leads coming in that police looked into. And things between Justin and Trista were escalating. 
while Justin and his brother collaborated with the Laura Recovery Center to create t-shirts and flyers and buttons to raise awareness, he hadn't actually spoken publicly about Ayla's disappearance, and Trista publicly criticized him as hiding something. Police also announced that they didn't think the adults who were home when Ayla went missing were being forthcoming. They announced that Ayla did not leave on her own and they had ruled out abduction. So in my mind anyway, that leaves only one option, foul play by the people in the home the night she went missing. And that's what was on everyone's minds, including Trista. But no arrests were made. Increasingly frustrated, Trista released information about the case, including about the blood evidence, in an attempt to pressure prosecutors into filing charges against Justin, Courtney, and Alicia. She thought that if she released this information, the public would be outraged and put pressure on the prosecutor to file charges. She re released information about the blood evidence, specifically that the police said it was specifically that the police said it was more than a cupful and, quote, more than a small cut would produce. And these were found near Justin's bed. Meanwhile, Justin's attorney still says it's from a time when she got sick. Again, I'm going to let you make your own conclusions with that. The Attorney General's office stated that making decisions to charge someone is based on evidence and not public demand. And Krista was undermining the investigation. They stated that they there were professional standards that need to be met and that charges are not based on emotion. And I can definitely see both sides here. While it seems like they have enough evidence to file charges... They also only get one shot at this, and without a body, it's that much more difficult. And with three potential defendants who can all start pointing fingers at each other, you're opening up a lot of reasonable doubt for a jury. At the same time, common sense tells you if it walks like a duck, it sounds like a duck, it's a damn duck. And my mama bear heart is right there with Trista, like, you and I both know that something shady went down. And one of those adults, if not all three of them, knows what the hell happened. Put the screws to them and make them talk. I would want to put pressure on whoever I could to. In April of 2012, police found unspecified items of interest behind the Hathaway Creative Center in the Kennebec River, about a mile from Justin's home. And in October of 2012, they also searched the Mesolonsky stream a second time when the water was artificially low due to construction, but no evidence was found there. Searches have also been conducted in Mayfield, Maine, and in the southern New Hampshire area with no results. And I don't know what led them to these specific areas. They must have had a tip or something. I couldn't find why these two specific areas. Ayla was declared legally dead in 2017. 
In December of 2018, Trista filed a wrongful death suit against Justin. And while the suit seeks monetary damages, Trista says mostly she hopes to find answers and to recover Ayla's body. And by subpoenaing testimony from Justin, Courtney, and Alicia, this would potentially be enough to bring criminal charges. The search and investigation for Ayla has been described as the largest criminal investigation in Maine's history and the third largest search for a missing child in the state's history. And while the case is considered a missing persons case, police say that foul play is involved. What really, really boils my blood about this one is that there are three grown-ass adults involved. And someone knows something here. Someone needs to do the right thing. It's been 10 damn years. It's time to do the right thing. Like, how do you live with yourself? This is a little baby. I just don't get it. The civil lawsuit against Justin DiPietro was slowed down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. In December of 2021, Trista's lawyer received thousands of pages of documents, photos, and recordings from the attorney general's office. Her attorney began conducting interviews with witnesses, including Phoebe DiPietro, Justin's mother. She owned the home in which Ayla disappeared from. In February of this year, 2022, Trista filed paperwork with the court to expand the wrongful death suit to include Alicia DiPietro and Phoebe DiPietro. This came after she and her attorney received a report on police evidence that suggested adults within the home the night Ayla went missing attempted to clean up the blood evidence before investigators arrived. Ayla was just 30 pounds when she went missing. She's described as being a Caucasian female with blonde hair and blue eyes. Her left arm was in a sling with a soft splint at the time of her disappearance. Anyone with information on the disappearance of Ayla Reynolds can contact the Waterville Police Department at 207-872-5551 or the Maine State Police at 207-624-7076. Those numbers, again, are the Waterville Police Department, 207-872-5551, or the Maine State Police at 207-624-7076. Similarly to Ayla's case, Lisa Irwin was last seen in her home in her bed. She was last seen on October 3rd, 2011. And while accounts vary, Lisa's mom, Deborah Bradley, last saw her daughter at 6.40 p.m. or 10.30 p.m. And we'll get into why those accounts vary in a minute. Also at the home at the time of Lisa's disappearance were her two half-brothers, Blake and Michael. Jeremy Irwin, Lisa's father, came home from work around 4 a.m. on October 4th. He was an electrician and he had been contracted to do this rare overnight job. He didn't normally work this shift. But when he arrived home, he immediately knew something was a little bit strange. The lights were on in the home, the front door was unlocked, and three cell phones the family had were missing. So he first checked on the boys. They are sound asleep. Deborah is also asleep. 
but when he checked Lisa's room, she was not in her crib. And he also noticed that her window was open. Deborah and Jeremy immediately call police and investigators begin an extensive search. They interview the parents, Lisa's brothers, and, and the Irwins make their home available to these extensive searches. But almost immediately, there is tension between the police and the parents. The police really hone in on Deborah. Her story changes and it doesn't seem to add up. And eventually she admits that she had been drinking that night. So that's why she doesn't recall when she last checked on Lisa, whether it was 6.40 or 10.30. The police put pressure on Deborah and Jeremy, specifically Deborah, and eventually they sort of shut down. They maintained that they had nothing to do with their daughter's disappearance. And at one point, a cadaver dog is brought in and police say it hits on a spot in Deborah and Jeremy's room. But later they learn that one of Lisa's dirty diapers had been in that spot and police say it was not an actual hit. While authorities claim that the parents were less than cooperative, Deborah and Jeremy vehemently deny this. They were rightfully frustrated because the physical evidence at the home seemed to be pointing away from De Deborah and Jeremy. So while the police are focusing on the parents, tips are coming in, and at least three different witnesses saw a man carrying a baby, wearing nothing but a diaper, around 4 a.m. on the night Lisa went missing. Police, though, are unable to identify this man. But it's definitely worth noting that three different witnesses saw the same thing and just a few miles from Lisa's home. At the home, investigators also make note of a screen on a window that appeared to be pushed in. But when investigators try to reenact a break-in through this window, they're unable to do so, and it is determined that this is an unlikely point of access. However, remember when Jeremy returned home, the front door was unlocked. Another mystery is that the family had three cell phones on the kitchen counter. All of these phones were missing. One of those phones, phone records later showed that one of those phones was used to call a woman named Megan Wright. This is about a 50 second phone call. Megan, when interviewed by police, denies answering that the phone that night. But what's more interesting is that Megan Wright was the girlfriend of a man named John Tanko, who went by the name of Jersey. This was a local man in the area, a lot of petty crimes under his belt, and he came under suspicion very quickly. He had a history of break-ins and thefts, including break-ins in Lisa's neighborhood. When police brought him in, to be identified by those witnesses who saw a man carrying a baby, only one of them identified Jersey as the man carrying the baby from that night. However, police said that Jersey has an alibi and he's never been named a suspect. The Irwins also pointed out a strange debit card charge. They had noticed that the family debit card was also missing shortly after Lisa's disappearance. 
There was one fraudulent charge that sticks out to them. It was $69.09, and it was charged to a British website that allows for legal name changes of children. But police are never able, able to run this lead down either. I don't know why. It just, nothing ever comes of it. In 2013, Lisa's case made national headlines again when a girl in Greece who shared a strong resemblance with Lisa was seen. This girl was living with a couple in a Roma camp. And while the couple claimed to be her parents, DNA proved that they were not her parents. The couple was later arrested for her abduction. This girl, however, was six years old and Lisa would have only been three at this time. DNA later confirmed that this was not Lisa Irwin. And later, a Roma woman from Bulgaria claimed that she had given her up, which corroborated with the couple who claimed to be her parents what they said. Lisa's parents believe that Lisa was abducted and that they were targeted. They feel like they were targeted because Jeremy didn't normally work nights. Deborah says she still thinks Lisa is alive somewhere and perhaps the victim of human trafficking. Lisa Irwin would be 11 years old today. She's described as being a Caucasian female with blonde hair and blue eyes. She has a birthmark on her right thigh. At the time of her disappearance, only two of her bottom teeth had come in. She was last seen wearing purple pants and a shirt with white kittens. Anyone with information on the disappearance of Lisa Irwin can contact the Kansas City Police Department at 816-474-8477. That number again for the Kansas City Police Department is 816-474-8477. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. I, I'm going to try to do better. Um, I really enjoy doing this podcast and doing the research and it does take a lot of my time though. So I am going to only focus on um, our Facebook page, Never Found, Never Forgotten Pod. You can find me there, interact with me there. Um, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye.